Hello and welcome back to Malopathy Matters, the official podcast of the charity Malopathy.org. Where we talk all things degenerative cervical myelopathy from the perspective of the professionals, the researchers and the people living with myelopathy. I'm Ewan Sadler, person with DCM and a founder of Malopathy.org. And I'm Ben Davies, neurosurgeon scientist and also founder of Myelopathy.org. This is Myelopathy Matters. So welcome back and a happy new year to everyone. Did you have a good Christmas, Ewan? Santa visit? Yes, he visited. I was a good boy. Happy New Year to you as well, Ben. My, my kids are a little bit too old now for the Santa thing. I'm not going to give anything away. But yeah, I ate too much. I think I've got to do a little bit more walking this year. That's my uh, New Year's resolution anyway. So who is kicking off our very first podcast of 2024? Well, as you may recall, last month in December, we spoke to Rohil Shohan, who works in a diagnosis and triage role for conditions like myelopathy in New Zealand. We talked about his work exploring the perceptions of primary care in the detection of DCM. Well, today we hear from James Watley, an advanced physiotherapist from North London, who sits in the same role to Rohill to understand just how similar these challenges are in the United Kingdom. So I'm delighted to be joined by James Watley, who's an advanced practice physiotherapist working mostly in the NHS from North London in a role in intermediate care, really to pick up on our themes from our podcast last month, where we've really been diving into the sort of coalface of trying to both pick up myelopathy and educate others to pick up myelopathy. So welcome to the podcast, James. Oh, thanks for having me on. Delighted. Perhaps we can start because I think people get a little bit confused, particularly with a, with a UK perspective about all these different sort of interfaces, primary, intermediate, secondary care. What What is the pathway for people with myelopathy and, and where do you sit in it? Yeah, so within the uh, department that I work in, we predominantly receive GP referrals um, and those referrals are triaged by ourselves, either straight to neurosurgeons or to us initially to see. From there, we were able to organise diagnostic imaging and other various tests and uh, and then triage accordingly to um, a spinal orthopedic surgeon or, or wherever that needs to go, that referral needs to go. And uh, we have also multidisciplinary team meetings with spinal surgeons and other consultants that we can help to uh, sort of triage patients' care. So what happens then when that referral comes in from the GP? I mean, what, what does it look like and, and what are you being asked to sort of do with it? So we have a, a single point of access system where we get referrals from not just for sort of orthopedic complaints or physiotherapy complaints, but it could be for rheumatological complaints or for pain management or whatever it might be. And that referral basically has information, the demographics of the patient, it has their clinical symptoms, if there's been any sort of physical examination, hopefully, and uh, and their past medical history and any attached letters from previous surgeries or scans that they may have had and then that helps us to make a decision and that's quite sort of an important part of the process really because obviously the the better quality of information we have then the quicker we can triage patients to the appropriate person. Do they have some sort of performer or you're very reliant on what the the primary care practitioners put forward to you? We have a set performer of things that uh, you know that we that has to be in there you know some details about the condition the, the history hopefully a clinical examination, although that isn't always possible. 
things like do they need a, an interpreter and all, all types of different bits of information. But yes, we have a template that uh, is filled out. Because mm-hmm. I guess what I'm trying to pick up a little bit was just sort of on your on your first comment there, because it seems to me that when you read a letter, you know, you're, you've got quite a lot of potential routes there. You know, you can mark it as urgent, you can get it straight through to neurosurgery, you can go into different meetings or different pathways. So there's, it's quite a focal point at which, you know, if you're thinking about myelopathy, potentially it goes yeah. one way, but if it's a bit unusual and maybe not quite obviously myelopathy, then it could well go a completely different direction. Yes, absolutely. And the, and the big thing is, you know, in our service at the moment, unfortunately, we have quite long wait time. So if it just says basic information and neck pain and nothing else, you know, recent onset of neck pain, and there hasn't been any other sort of questions led on to and asked about, you know, with DCM balance, clumsiness, paresthesia in the hands, whatever it might be. If it just says neck pain, that might be, it could be rejected asking for more information, which is usually what happens. Or someone might, you know, if there's middle information, might triage it to a physiotherapist and then the patient's not seen for several, you know, for a few months. So it's critical, really, that that part of the process. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And and what's your sort of experience then around your colleagues in the, in, in, in the service? I mean, I guess we should probably start, I guess, by asking how you became interested in myelopathy, because that's how we've sort of connected. And, and maybe then we can get a sense of, you know, what you feel like the broader interests are in, in your, you know, intermediate care role. Several years ago, I was working as a, as a, phys- a junior physiotherapist in a, in a lower limb class. And a patient we'd been seeing for osteoarthritic knee pain walked in with a very um, ataxic gait and quite a lot of distress, really. So um, I took them into a cubicle and performed a neurological examination, saw lots of different signs, hyperreflexia, positive Hoffman's, all these sorts of things, referred to a colleague who imaged them and sent them on, sent them for a scan and sent them to a neurosurgeon. And that kind of spiked my interest. And then really that's developed since I've started working as an advanced practice physiotherapist and with the ability to scan patients, obviously, you know, I, I suspect myelopathy quite a lot and refer for imaging. That doesn't always, you know, quite often it, it, it isn't a diagnosis of DCM, but I think that's a place which we, we need to get to where we're scanning more, a bit like how we might scan for, let's say, Corduroquina syndrome, a chronic Corduroquina syndrome case in, in, in my sort of clinic where we would refer for urgent imaging quite often, you know, they won't have that diagnosis, but there are parallels there that I can draw with that condition. Slightly different, obviously, because if it's a, an urgent acute case, we would refer to A&E, but there's clear guidelines for that condition, which we don't quite have for, for myelopathy. I'm aware that I'm veering off track a little bit there. <laughs> you can see I'm just trying to draw some parallels there with, with the back condition. Yeah, and I think that's something we've drawn often, actually. I mean, I think for the, for listeners, the quadriquina is a, another type of spinal condition. And what's very different there, I think, is that there have been very clear symptoms developed, a list of symptoms which, if present, should make practitioners think about urgent imaging, either via A&E or, or otherwise. And and we clearly do lack that in myelopathy, which I think is a, is a big problem. I mean, picking up on what you were just saying there, James, I mean, you, you sound like you've already had quite a keen interest in this or it's just, you know, to be, you had mm-hmm. that sort of broad experience to be able to go out and find those signs. What's the sort of experience in physiotherapists and training, particularly those coming in as advanced practitioners? Is this something well taught and yeah. you know, the awareness is high or, or what? It depends. I mean, th- there are a few departments that I've worked in where I would say the awareness five, ten years ago wasn't there. But the particular department that I work in at the moment, and because we're a well-integrated organisation, we work closely with neurosurgeons, we have these MDTs, that the awareness is is really good. There's tr- regular training. 
on how to perform neurological examination. And there's this, I guess there's this, this sort of, you know, that we don't want it, that this kind of thing is, we don't want to miss this condition as well. You know, it's, it's definitely well recognized in the department that I work in. Um, and we're encouraged as well, you know, to image possible DCM patients. Don't be afraid to, even if the neurological examination is normal and they ha- might have a subset of subjective symptoms, don't be afraid to image, which I think is is really good. And that's how I feel we can get to a place of making a, a sort of an earlier diagnosis for these patients. Any sense of where that culture's come from? Is it a sort of a, you know, people off their own back or some sort of policy related thing? Probably uh, there's two particular APPs, uh, advanced practice physiotherapists in my team that work in spinal orthopedics that are very aware of the condition and provide lots of in-house, in-service training to both us and the more junior physiotherapists. And also because of the effect of uh, some local um, spinal surgeons that we work with as well, and they deliver regular training once per year, and that always covers myopathy. And that just feeds down through the organisation or through our department. So it's a very well-recognised condition. So I've asked you to draw a little bit on, you know, your perspectives now trying to, to work on this. And I think we all share the, the frustrations and challenges with how long it can take to get through the system. <laughs> you and I don't know, how, how long did it take you to get your diagnosis? I think it was 14 years altogether. Oh, okay. And yeah, but they, they investigated my back first as well. So because of my gait and everything. So it was a long drawn on process, I must admit. So a long drawn out process. I think 14 years is probably one of the extreme outliers, but certainly years is, is not, not at all uncommon. I mean, just reflecting back, James, what, what do you think we can do to improve that, you know, with your lens? Because one of the challenges I have about trying to help in this area is that I'm quite a long way down the pathway. You know, I'm totally reliant on people bringing the diagnosis to me and and exactly how we go out and find the disease you know it's 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 much further removed from my perspective my perspective and i think it's that's why we need to talk to people like yourself yeah no absolutely we know that primarily gps are going to be that first point of contact as well as first contact practitioners and people of, of that ilk then neurosurgeons and neurologists and things but obviously you guys and neurologists are going to be very aware of the condition and when to scan, when not to scan, etc. So I think GPs are the, would be the primary target of us trying to raise their awareness. And I was interestingly having a chat with a, uh, a colleague of mine only a few days ago about how we could raise awareness for DCM. And he mentioned some things like putting some information on primary care network websites, integrated care board websites, through various newsletters, I think it personally needs even more than that. At a local level, it needs that kind of facilitatory role. Um, I've had meetings discussing common MSK conditions and how to assess them with local GP practices, and and myelopathy usually comes up. So I think that that kind of interlink that at a personal level to discuss it and offer some training, if possible, time's always an issue for GPs finding that time to offer this training. And also, I think at a curricular level in in uh you know medical school and and in even physiotherapy degrees just having sessions discussing the condition that always is just going to raise awareness and it, and it's just that recognizing it in your practice really which just if we could improve that and then the final point i'd like to make is around the is the referral quality if the referral quality is good then that's how we can get quicker access for patients mm-hmm. that that's something that i'm listening to all this because i also have the lens of being married to a gp so i get the, you know, the other side of the the argument because obviously they're under a lot of pressure to remain 
up to date around a whole host of different conditions. I guess, mm. you know, that referral thing seems to me a really critical part of this pathway because I'm not 100% certain that making GPs experts on myelopathy is an effective use of resources. And actually what we all need them to do really is just to be able to articulate the problem in a manner with which someone like yourself, who's an expert, can read that information and go, oh, yeah, this needs urgent MRI scan. And, and, and maybe that's an easier win for us than trying to go, okay, the GP has sent a letter saying, is this degenerative cervical myelopathy? What do you think? I agree. I don't think it needs them to be experts at all. I think it's just little things like, you know, on a referral, if the patient has lower back pain, they'll be asking them questions like, what, you know, what is their bladder and bowel function like? Do you have any sudden anesthesia, etc.? And in myelopathy, if, if the patient has, you know, neck pain or referred pain down their arm, whatever it might be, it's those leading questions of, are you suffering with your balance? How is your walking at the moment? Do you have any numbness or tingling in your arms or legs or in both hands? Do you, are you dropping things? Are you clumsy? Are you struggling to hold cutlery, do it buttons, pick up coins, write, all those sorts of things. If, if, I think if those questions, if, if the patient's symptoms then lead to a subset of questions, then that can, uh, you know, that information can then go into the referral and then we can go from there. What do you think, Ewan? I know that the end of your diagnostic pathway did essentially evolve one of these sort of interface type systems. I think it's called something completely different in Wales, isn't it? Is it CATS or something? Yeah, uh, CMAT, isn't it? C-MAT. And um, what we hear from the support group all the time is there's so many sort of crossovers um, neurological crossovers with the symptoms that that doesn't help the situation as well. You know, a lot of people in the group, they've been sort of given the diagnosis, maybe you have MS, carpal tunnel is another problem as well. I think if the doctor has the right questions to ask the patient, I think that will help. At the moment, it can be very difficult for GPs to do a physical examination, but in some ways, I guess, that isn't. I think what's more essential is the more the subjective, sorry, questioning um, of patients. It's really important. And just drawing on a meeting that I had recently with a with a GP, coincidentally referred a patient to us with bilateral carpal tunnel syndrome. Came to see me. It was quite atypical. Ended up referring for an urgent MRI of their neck and neurophysiology tests, and lo and behold, it was it was DCM, and they. The good thing in our services as well, we can we have the ability to email neurosurgeons say, you know, can you see this patient a bit more urgently and, and then get them in as quickly as possible for, for surgery, which some departments don't have that luxury. But you're absolutely right, you and I think it's that it's um it's just asking the right questions at the right time. Yeah, and I must admit, every time I've gone to a physiotherapist, I've had more information from the physiotherapist, maybe it's because of the time I've spent with them about my condition, you know, we get a better understanding. But I think we lack sort of educational support. So how do you think we can improve this from, you know, a physiotherapist's perspective? Great question. And so I delivered, uh, I haven't touched on this yet, I delivered um, quite a, a big talk a couple of months ago via a platform called Physio Matters. And uh, that was on screening for DCM. And one of the questions that came up from the Q&A at the end of that talk was, what can we do pre and post-op, you know, from a physiotherapy perspective? And I don't have the answer. I don't know, correct me if I'm wrong, I'm not sure we know exactly what the best care is at the moment. I know there's lots of work going on in the background. 
the Recode Group and people like Chad Cook to try and find those answers. That's a, a big uh, sort of knowledge gap, I think, at the moment is I'm in, I'm in a sort of part of the pathway where I can organize diagnostic imaging and workup or triage patients directly to neurosurgeons. But what I'm not part of is that post-op, pre-op, offering potential rehabilitation part of it um you know I'll, I'll see patients i'll safety net them and things before they see the neurosurgeon but in terms of offering that extra sort of rehab support if the patient needs pain management discussions around you know, medicines and things like that we can organize them before they see a neurosurgeon but that's definitely a gap we need to fill it's interesting listening to that because i think you're absolutely right the, the huge knowledge gaps but i guess it also raises the question because i think you know i guess for doctors in the main they the the title of their specialty almost defines where they sit in the path doesn't it but clearly as a physiotherapist you, you can sit at multiple different points and have multiple but not necessarily you're not sitting at multiple points so you're clearly at the front end diagnostic triage and then there's possibly a different physiotherapist doing the sort of post-op recovery stuff isn't there are you all trained by the same route i mean they are there different ways to reach different groups of physiotherapists i guess is my question yeah, that's a great question. I think we what we don't have in our department at the moment is that, as far as I'm aware, that sort of post-operative support for patients from physiotherapy. I think some DCM, post-op DCM patients do receive physiotherapy, but we don't have a clear pathway. And we've all come via different routes and pathways to get to where we are right now. Um, some of us, we all would have done our sort of junior rotations and then worked some of us would have worked more in private healthcare. Some of us would have worked through the NHS. But I wouldn't say that there's that clear, streamlined approach of, you know, in terms of DCM, of understanding what we do pre and post-op in our service anyway. I, I would say until, well, I, I delivered that talk, like I mentioned a couple of uh, months ago, which was to a much larger audience of allied health professionals and therapists have the ability to subscribe to this platform and then watch that recording back so that you know the, that could go out to a lot of different physiotherapists worldwide but prior to that a lot of my influence I'd say has been more locally in the departments that I've worked in delivering in-service trainings working closely with the physiotherapists that I've worked with and also discussions with GPs and trying to raise awareness that way so that, but I you know I have posted some social media posts over recent years but I have to say there's lots of physiotherapists actually which post information uh, about DCM. And from, from what I can see, it's fairly well received. Uh, we're, we're an enthusiastic bunch, I would say, as physiotherapists. We like to learn and take on new information and try and improve patient care and triage patients um, better than we are. So, But I, I think, it, it, as always, you know, we just need more. And I, and I think also we need to target the people right front part of the pathway as i mentioned gps and um and first contact practitioners and people like that yeah definitely as we know you know if we can have an early diagnosis and treatment or tell that person right you can't do this you can't do that you know we can give them sort of a little bit of educational support i think that goes a long way It's great to have James on. I was able to reach out to him on Twitter where he had shared a lecture on DCM, so I thought he would be a great candidate for the podcast. But it does amaze me that a lot of these problems are really the same around the world. You know, 12,000 miles separates the UK from New Zealand, but we are hearing the same perspective from James 
Andrew Will. Yeah, it certainly seems that way. And I guess, you know, in some senses, it's a positive thing because it really does indicate that progress anywhere should really mean improvement everywhere. And I guess that's probably an easier goal than chasing lots of different solutions for every country. Yeah, very true. Very true. It's great to have the sort of physiotherapy communities so involved as well. So what do you think we have learned from these two guests? Well, my reflections last month were very much that specialist triage seems to be very important, but the key seems to be planting the seed in the primary care professional's mind that this could be DCM. And essentially, I think those themes remain true uh, from James's point of view. I think of relevance to the UK, where we have a national health service, we've heard a lot more detail on that first step from James, the initial referral from primary care. And it's interesting in a sense that a single document, that referral letter, seems to be so critical to how the pathway then flows. You know, frightening perhaps that the wrong information could slow the next phases down. But equally, in a system engineering sense, quite exciting that, you know, if you just fix that one action, you could really make a big difference. And I think that's probably where we need to focus a lot of our efforts as an organisation. Yeah, and something that the up-and-coming diagnostic criteria can no doubt help with as well. Yeah, I, I really do hope so. I mean, I mean, James himself drew parallels to a similar condition in, in cord equina, how an effective set of symptoms have really changed the way that that process is triaged and managed. Yeah, and I want to re- reinforce something James said, that the physiotherapist seems very enthusiastic community for our cause. It has certainly been my experience. I share a lot of time on social media, you know, formalopathy.org. And the Facebook physiotherapist groups and DCM awareness and research is always well received. And it's also a common theme online as well. So it's getting there. And I think the backing of the physiotherapist community is a great thing for DCM. I completely agree. You know, Marlopi.org receives more professional inquiries from frontline physiotherapists than any other profession at the moment. And I suspect it reflects their frustrations in the current situation. And it's great that many are taking on the challenge because, you know, I think this is really the critical thing here. You know, if we ultimately deliver a pathway which gives people timely surgery, then we can really allow the disability and myelopathy to melt away. Yes, definitely, definitely. And I think it's a great community to get involved because I think I've I sort of had more information from a physiotherapist, you know, when I had DCM than from the doctor and the surgeon because of the time I'd spent with them as well. I think it's a great, you know, step in the right direction. Well, thanks very much to James Watley for joining us. This was Myelopathy Matters from myelopathy.org, the podcast produced by Carl Homer from Cambridge TV. To keep up to date with the latest in the field, why not subscribe on your favourite podcast app, where you can also find all of our previous episodes. There's also lots of information and support to be found at myelopathy.org. But if you have a question or a story to share, please get in touch at ben at myelopathy.org. Until next time, goodbye.